Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Well, hello and welcome back to Pantasocracy. It has been a while, and for a time I wasn't sure if I'd get out at all this year, but we are back. Back in our parlour of conversations and music, but in a rather more intimate or uh, socially distanced uh, version. And... Um, it's quite different for me, I have to say, on a personal note, not to have an audience here with us. Um, so uh, we're, it's going to take me to, some time to get used to. Um, but my guests, on the other hand, um, it's all new to you anyway. Uh, so with me are two very different um, writers. The debonair is the word that's uh, often used to describe you. Mark O'Connell, debonair, um, whose dark, witty new work, Notes from an Apocalypse, seems um, spookily apt for the times that we are living in. Um, he's literally gone to the ends of the earth to hang out with some doomsday folk. A- and then we also have um, an Indian woman who has adopted Ireland as her home since the late 80s. Um, so th- that's a journey. <laughs> um, uh, uh, please welcome Calvary Madeline. Thanks for being with us, Calvary. And your new novel is The Tainted, and it uh, sets a mixed-race love story against the backdrop of Irish soldiers' mutiny in India, a story which I knew nothing about until I came across your book. Then finally, we have a, a songstress, Lisa Lam. You are one of only two people who's been a guest on this show twice. They're doing Jacko work, so congratulations. That is some sort of... Um, I also intimidated when I'm not going to meet you, Lisa, as I said earlier, because of your incredible hair. So if you're at home uh, listening to this, go online, find uh, the video clip on pantasocracy.ie and look at Lisa's hair and um, swoon with jealousy. Lisa, we all remember your last time you were here and uh, it was a Christmas show. And here, this time, we're going to talk about your new album, Juniper. Because... We're going to talk about that because there's something that links all three of you here today. Is that you all had these artistic babies that were delivered in the middle of a global pandemic. That's a sort of a scary sort of feeling, I imagine, that things uh, that you've been preparing for so long are suddenly thrust out into the world and everyone is uh, screaming. <laughs> and we've all, of course, had to be dealing with the whole lockdown. And my lockdown uh, has been very interesting for me. I learned stuff about myself. Um, I have always thought that I'm naturally lazy and that given the opportunity, I would just love to lie around doing nothing. I've also thought I'd be you know, the perfect lottery winner, but it turns out that's not quite true. I'm just a procrastinator because if you do give me the opportunity or force me to lie around the house all day, I just get so bored so quickly. And so I hated that part of it, but you know what? Everything has a silver lining because that drove me to find things to do. And what I did was I've upskilled. I have really gotten into, you know, hairstyling and stuff, you know, more than I ever did before. And I've even overcome my fear of technology and have learned how to edit video. And I'm, turns out I'm pretty good. So it's been a, a mixed bag for me. On one hand, I've hated it. <laughs> and of course, I have other things in my life that are just all paused in a way that's looming and dark and I'm worried about. But then there's these other things I've learned about myself. And yeah, I think I used the time productively. Mark, have you? <laughs> wow, what a question. Uh, have I used it productively? I mean, it's been a strange time for me because obviously the book has come out and so I've been, for much of it, been kind of busy with doing the promotional stuff around yeah. the book, which has all happened in my Online. spare room. Yeah, so all of the things that I was going to be doing throughout the spring and summer, flying around and going to festivals and things like that. Yeah. Some of them are happening, but they're happening online. But it is, it's hard, it's hard to work. It's hard to get into the headspace of, it is, yeah. of doing work, um, you know, especially when you're at home and there's, I have two young kids you and all kids, that yeah. stuff. But yeah. And everybody's experience of it is the same and yet different too, because there's certain, now, Kovar, you've had nine people in your house? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because uh, I have three children and their partners were, were with us almost, almost the entire period. Uh, because uh, by choice, uh, b- by choice, yeah. Because by, <laughs> not by my choice, but by their choice. <laughs> no, we are. We had three grown-up children, and uh, they all three studying abroad. So when they came back home, our son came back with his Norwegian girlfriend because she couldn't go back to Norway because her mother has a lung condition, and she, you know, she didn't want to go back there. So she came to us, and she came to us with her dog. <laughs> so we we had we had sort of, uh, and then my my daughter, you know, her her boyfriend decided 
decided to they wanted to be together so they she he decided to, to come to us as well mm. and my younger daughter as well has her boyfriend staying with us <laughs> so but it's you know it it's it's been not too bad and you also have your own mother um that's right living yeah. with you and, and yeah. she only came from india like quite re- relatively recently yeah she she's been with me for the last three years you know she came and just before she turned 80 and boy i tell you something i am so glad she's with me uh, rather than be alone in india you know? yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Happy. well and of course you're really at the face of because you're Husband is a surgeon and uh, working in the hospital front line. Of- yeah, for the first four weeks, I mean, I was so distracted because, uh, I mean, I literally achieved nothing because all I did was watch the news and I was anxious mm. when he came home, you know, that he stays separate from us. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I moved bedrooms uh, and I'm never going back. <laughs> you told him that, yeah. <laughs> yeah I tell you it's, it's fabulous to have your own bedroom. <laughs> nothing like it. No, but jokes aside, you know, we, we were quite worried Yeah. Uh, initially but you know you we've kind of we've let it go now we've let that anxiety go uh, about you know because i i know i'm sure he he yeah. is super careful you know so well, yeah. well you can't do anything more than that well it's amazing how quickly we adapt to all these things although we were just saying we were in you're meeting each other earlier on we haven't worked out what to do about a handshake and all that still that's i find that so awkward now lisa your I, one of the things you said about you know your album is that it's like going through the stages of grief when you've you know, spent all this time and you expect it to be out there, then, you know, selling it and performing and all that. And then it just stops. Yeah, it was a very interesting kind of race to the launch of the album. Mm. And the launch of the album was April 3rd, which was just about a week into what we were all about to kind of face yeah. together. And I remember in March, I was talking to the, the the record label who were over in Los Angeles and everything was sort of in motion for it to come out like yourselves and touring it, mm-hmm. promoting it, everything. So it almost felt we couldn't almost delay it or we, we couldn't postpone it. And it yeah. felt the album was such, I suppose, a, a, a devotion or a love letter to nature that I kind of felt, well, you know, look, this is meant to happen. It's meant to come out now and I, I just have to be brave about it and I suppose embrace that thing of technology, which I was so afraid of. Um, so I launched my album on Facebook um, <laughs> and we we pre-recorded it and we put it out. But I got to, you know, pour myself a glass of wine and watch this yeah. performance ha- unfolding. But what was fantastic was that everybody who's been part of the the making of the album, which took 18 months of going to the Connemara, writing it, songwriting, going to studios to prep it and then going to Donegal to make it finally. Everybody that was involved, all the music makers came together for this performance on April 3rd, which was really special. So there was 10 like, musicians. Like, you mean I came together online? To, to get, to and, came together but apart, I suppose, yes. is the phrase. Um, so there was, from all corners of Ireland, everybody was in their home studio or their, their bedroom. And it was really moving, actually. I suppose to reimagine how to put something together that would still represent all of those crumb trails and all of those things that have brought you to that moment. So I was really conscious, I suppose, of the quality of what was going to be shared for the very yeah. first time. So, and, and you, a bit like me, had to overcome your fear of technology and then you learn something in, in a way. But, but you're also putting a positive spin here on the lockdown too because it's not wasn't all easy. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I saw a thing where you were, the first month you, you found hard and then you sort of, I don't know, got into it. Yeah, I think so. I, I think initially... You're a hugger, of course. <laughs> I know, mm. I know. I'm the youngest of 10, so I'm used to being around lots of people like yeah, like your yeah. like your lovely home yeah. during lockdown. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been a learning process for sure. I think initially when the news and 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 the the pandemic was so new to all of us, I didn't feel like I wanted to go online or post things. I, you know, I usually post things about my work, which was obviously very different, but like Mark, I mean, there was so many things that were coming up. So, I kind of in the first few weeks kept working on the album, kept promoting it, doing stuff online, yeah. taking call, you know, phone call interviews. And and I suppose mid lockdown is when I really kind of stepped into the, oh, I can, you know, I can, I can wear my pajamas now for the, for the next <laughs> little while and, and, and Zoom, you know, from my kitchen table. And so it's been, it's been great though. I think I've, I've definitely slowed down, which has been really good because you don't realise how busy you are, I think. It's also one of, the, the, one of the positives that I got out of it is I realised Yeah, the world can just stop and we don't all die. Yeah. In a way, our lives continued nor- in some ways normal. You know, we, the, the, the you know, world order didn't break down apart from stockpiling toilet roll. You know, uh, my bank card still worked. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, and, and that was actually kind of a surprise mm. because 
the world didn't end. Mm. And, and that actually is comforting to me somehow. Mm. Well, and I, your whole book is basically about that, Mark. Yeah, I guess it is. I mean, yeah, I mean, there was so many sort of dramatic ironies around the book coming out when it did. And the themes of it obviously are about anxieties to do with situations that are, yeah, I mean, apocalyptic situations, whether they're to do with climate change or an asteroid hitting the planet Mm. or the just sort of slow disintegration of civilization or whatever. And, you know, um, viral pandemics do come into the book here and there. But yeah, so there was a lot of sort of, um, it was a weird time to be releasing a book on, on exactly that topic. And, you know... Sort of a brilliant time in a way. I mean, well, I like, yeah. has that been a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I, d- I don't know. I guess it's still quite early days, you know, in terms yeah. of publishing. I guess like yourself, Lisa, like the book came out right on the cusp of when this thing was becoming yeah. obviously very serious. And there was a lot of anxiety around. It was too late really to, to but, pull it, but it was also, it seemed like, well, maybe if any book is going to have some something to say, something to speak about to this moment, maybe this is one of the books. But, that, you know, you, you know. decided to write a book about, you know, yeah. apocalyptic anxiety, <laughs> you know, you're called Nose in the Apocalypse. There must have been something in the ether that you were like, you're sensing. Why did you well, write yeah, I mean, part of the sort of idea of the book is that it's always the apocalypse. I mean, that's sort of what I'm getting at in the book is that it's never not the end of the world. Depending on where you are or who you are, there is always cause for apocalyptic anxiety. And it seems like, you know, I guess this is just the nature of psychology or whatever, but we look back to sort of six months ago now as a sort of a halcyon period or whatever. But, you know, when I started writing the book in what sort of mid-2016, it did seem like there were sort of apocalyptic intimations in the ether, as you'd put it. And I was sort of trying to pick up on those and sort of trying to explore my own anxieties around these things and, you know, going out into the world and encountering other people's versions of these anxieties and the ways that they were preparing for them and so on. At the same time, I mean, a lot of the conversation around the book since it's come out, you know, whether it's reviews or interviews or whatever, has been around the idea that the book is sort of weirdly, uncannily prescient and Mm. that the timing is, you know, couldn't be better. Obviously, it's not prescient. I had no no more idea than anyone else that anything like this was coming. That's what prescience is. You you, you just sense it. I suppose so, yeah. No, I'll take it. Yeah, I'll I'll happily take that. But, but, But are there... The, the apocalyptic fears or the anxieties, are they generational or are they always the same? I mean, like, I'm in some ways, I'm surprised that I'm still here talking to you because I thought at one time that I was going to be burned to death under my school desk by a nuclear holocaust. And yeah. that was the big worry when I was a, in primary school, you know, nuclear annihilation. Yeah, I guess I sort of caught the tail end of that. It was sort of in my consciousness in terms of things that were in the culture or whatever at the time. just trying to point out that you're younger than me. Absolutely. Did I not do that subtly enough? (laughs) (laughs) Try harder. (laughs) Um, But I guess the thing for me, like growing up was like the ozone that was like the big apocalyptic fear certainly for kids i don't know you know and uh that sort of went away but the, i mean the, the the sort of big kind of looming thing in the background of, of my book is is really climate change you know it's not a book about climate change but that's yeah. the sort of for me the moment that i started writing out was a moment of sort of combined anxiety about the perception of this like really sort of vast darkness on the sort of horizon of the future yeah. combined with a sense that politically things were fragmenting and just the, the idea of the future is like a very dark place and that combined with you know bringing young children into yes. the world and it's, it's funny because you know not the first uh, gentleman we've had on the show who, who speaks about that but you know mm. you, you have children and suddenly your worldview or your perspective on things becomes longer um, yeah. and that's certainly true of you in this book i guess it is yeah like it's not like i was never you know concerned about climate change or anything like that but certainly like it it becomes personal the Mm. future becomes personal i think for me anyway after i had children because you're implicated in it you know Mm. not only it's it's easy to think of the future in sort of abstract terms uh, when it's just you and i think then when you have kids like you, you in some way extend further into that future and also the big thing for me is that you're responsible for in some way, that yeah. person's future experience. You've brought them into the world, you know? Yeah. You've, you've in some way made a case for the world and the future by yeah. having a child. So that, like, there's, a, there's a kind of a, a moral kind of dimension to, to mm. all that for me that I wanted to explore in the book. Yeah, and now, Cover, you have three kids. And, you know, not just the big decisions, but these smaller, relatively smaller decisions that people may also impact on, you know, your, your kids. So moving to Ireland 
your kids were all born here? Yeah, I, I, they were born. My, our eldest was born five years after we moved. Okay. So. Oh, actually, yes, because there's a brilliant story about you and the condoms. But <laughs> tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I came, you know, my husband came six months ahead of me. We were just newly married. Uh, this is 1986, straight from India to Sligo. And I, I, he came in September and I joined him then the following February. And about a week before I left, I had both my grandmothers-in-law alive at that time, uh, both his grandmothers and my mother and my mother-in-law. And the four women wanted to pack for me, you know, wanted to pack my, my suitcases uh, because I was coming away. And of course, in those days, you know, you, you weren't coming for, you know, for two months, you know, you went and then you probably might come back after two years. So uh, the, the women, the, the, the in-laws, you know, the three grandmother, the two grandmothers-in-law were determined that I was going to take all the, the linen that I had got for my, you know, as wedding gifts. Anyway, there's a severe amount of packing and repacking going on. And then my husband rang me and said, oh, by the way, you don't get condoms here, so you better bring some condoms. And of course, in India in those days, and even now, I mean, no woman would ever go out you know, to a pharmacy to buy a condom, you know, this so. the late 80s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I said, what? And he said, no, you don't get them. You, you know, you, you only get them on prescription and no GP in Sligo will prescribe. So, you know, the, the, the phone calls are eight pounds a minute and he just said that and put the phone down. You know, and then <laughs> I spent the last two days in India going from one pharmacy to another very sheepishly buying condoms and then trying to figure out how I was going to get this into the two suitcases. You know, like how many condoms was I to take in the first place? He said, oh, we're, we're here for two years, bring two years supply. And so I, four. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. Um, but I actually arrived in Belfast with my suitcase full of condoms. And I remember thinking, if I get stopped <laughs> in customs, what am I going to say? You know, and it's difficult to, I mean, I don't think, like my kids could, would never get their heads around that. Yeah. You know, recently when, when they when they heard the story recently, they just couldn't, couldn't believe. I have families that are going to hit, and I was alive and well, you know, when they were illegal. Yeah. I, I still, but I still, I think, God, that is so bizarre that we thought that was just normal. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, for, for somebody coming from India where, you know, the government distributed condoms mm -hmm. for free, you know, if you wanted mm -hmm. to get your head around the fact that in the West, which is supposed to be like, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, I came from a conservative country to a really, really ultra conservative Ireland. Mm -hmm. Way more I just announced here that my dad is a pharmacist and I've, I've never <laughs> really spoken about this, but in the 80s, round about this yeah, time, actually, yeah, 86, yeah. I don't know when they became illegal. Was it like early 90s, right? So it was a little bit before 90s, that. Yeah. They, they became semi-legal for, you know, you could buy them and you could get them in prescription, prescription yeah. Yeah. Uh, from a chemist. And then the Virgin Megazor thing was right. early right, 90s, yeah. 91 early 90s, or something. Yeah. So it was yeah. around this time. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether he's going to kill me for saying this, but I think it's quite cool, actually. It's one of the things I'm very proud of him for. But like around that time, late 80s, early 90s, him and a bunch of other pharmacists in Kilkenny did a, a train run up mm. to Belfast and oh, yeah. basically smuggled train, a bunch yeah. of condoms yeah. back. And yeah. I think a lot of pharmacists around that time just had had enough and said, we're not going to yeah. deny yeah. her. Yeah. I actually think, you know, just, you know, for, 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 me, for my experience to have been that, and then actually my three children came back from wherever they were studying to vote in both the referendums, you know, and I just find that just so amazing yeah. that you could come to such a conservative country and then your own children would just change Mm. be part mm. of that change. Mm. Yeah, well, that's kind of an what I was getting at in a way because your decision to move here mm. it, you know, impacted you know, enormously on, on the kids you had. Absolutely, yeah. They would yeah. be entirely yeah. different people. Yeah, they would have been. They would have been, yeah, because the pressures, you know, the pressures of growing up in India are so different because in India, if you come from, um, you know, an educated middle-class family, then your childhood is only about studying and mm. studying and you have to become this and you have to become that. Yeah. And you cannot become anything else because otherwise you're a failure, your family's mm. a failure, your father's mm. a failure. You know, it's such such huge pressure. And that was one of the reasons we stayed back in Ireland. But you still ended up with two doctors and a vet. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely ridiculous because our, we, you know, our eldest girl, we said, do what you want. She said, I'm going to be a chef. So she's a fully qualified chef. Uh, and then she said, I'm going to do medicine now. So that was quite crazy. And then our son, we said, do what you want. And he said, oh, I'm, I want to study music. So he studied music. And then he said, I'm going to be a vet. 
<laughs> you know, so after all that, then, and our youngest was the only one who knew what she wanted to be. And, you know, she is a doctor as well. <laughs> well, Lisa, you are, of course, what age? Oh, I shouldn't, you know, you're in your 30s. Something. Yes, darling. So, like, like the, the, the idea of hearing about a time when you couldn't buy a condom in this country must seem like nuts to you, even. Absolutely. I mean, just to sit here and, and hear this is like, I'm kind of, I'm almost like, like the totally. Huge yeah. fuss about the Virgin Mega Store selling condoms. Yeah. Like it was, uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Amazing. And yeah. but at the time, you were probably um, on the in the gaiety panto because <laughs> you, she's known what she wanted to do all her life. <laughs> she's been a Billy Barry kid the lot. Yeah. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about this album because we're going to hear some. Well, the, the whole idea of everybody during lockdown, I think, embracing nature a little bit more. I remember at the very start, before lockdown happened, I was I was in the west of Ireland and I was making one of the videos for the new album. And the song was called Dust and Sand. And mm. it's kind of about a place of purgatory. In the video, I'm completely alone and isolated in these beautiful bog roads. The scenery is, is stunning. So little did I know, kind of, you know, 10 days later, we would all be practicing social distancing and <laughs> yeah. isolation. And so the video also felt very timely. And I remember sitting in O'Dowd's pub in Roundstone after we finished the shoot and everybody kind of talking about hand sanitizer and mm. in this very, very small little beautiful idyllic place yeah. and kind of knowing that something big is going to happen and but the album was written in Roundstone and it was written during downtime from from theatre and what does Juniper refer to it's a, tr the, a tree in Hanover yeah so it's a tree I, I used to pass this beautiful bog road between Clifton and Roundstone and they're all bog roads they're all Clifton. bog roads they're all, all beautiful <laughs> undulating bog roads and they're really quiet and this particular road there was a tree always on this part of the road on the bend I loved and I think it wasn't very pretty or anything, but it was it was gnarly, but it was really resilient and I loved the shape of it. So I found out this was a juniper tree and it's part of the Cedarwood family, which is the tree of community. And the juniper tree is so special when I looked it up. It was the first tree that planted its roots in the Irish soil after the Ice Age. And um, it's a tree that sheltered baby Jesus from Herod. So it's a tree of protection and love mm. and strength and resilience. And I thought... This is kind of really amazing. And all of those qualities are things I think we've all kind of, well, I certainly have uh, really tuned into, I think, during mm. this, this lockdown time. Now, the song you're going to do from us, for us is from the album and it's called Holding Back the Tide. Yes. And uh, you're, going, you're going to have some accompaniment. I have the wonderful John McLaughlin uh, with me here. John has played with me for, for many years. This is one of the best parts about doing Such this. Such a treat. Yeah. Get some great yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. This is the first time I've been singing except in the shower. <laughs> Ready? Crossing over oceans with a ghost traveling light. She was looking for a reason and comfort in the night. Oh, where did you go? And where are you running from? What did you say? And what's up? behind her shoulder like the hands 
It is honestly one of the best parts about doing this to get to, you know, have these live performances in a small space and it feels like it's just for us. And, you know, I do love it. Thank you, Lisa. And thanks, Don. <laughs> but, Mark, one of the things we briefly touched on already that links you to Lisa's album is the climate change stuff. But, you know, you went around the world to people who are, in a way, preppers, you know, preparing for the apocalypse. And some of them are doing that with a lot of money and buying huge plots of land in New Zealand. And some of them are doing it in a more smaller way. And climate change is the fear that's driving a lot of them, not all of them, a lot of them. Did you come away from it feeling comforted or more anxious? I mean, the book took like two and a half years to write or thereabouts. Uh, So there was a lot of sort of changes in my life that happened during that time you know it was a hard book to write there was a I was dealing with a lot of dark sort of stuff and a lot of anxieties but somehow by the end of that period I did feel like I had sort of relinquished or set aside in some way a lot of the anxieties that impelled me to write it in the first place and some of that had to do with you know having a second child which in a way should have caused me to be more anxious about the things I was anxious about in terms of parenthood in the first place, but it somehow didn't work out like that. Just getting a little bit older, all of these things. But yes, somehow I did find that I was less anxious by the time I finished writing it than I was at the beginning. And then, of course, the apocalypse happened. Yeah, but but it seems to be a strain in your... uh you know, thinking or something, uh, uh, the sort of future stuff. Because obviously your previous book, which is so brilliant and a fun read as well as a interesting and uh, informative, uh, To Be a Machine, uh, it's all about transhumanism and uh, award-laden. But there's a, you know, there's a theme between those two books. And, and they've often sort of connected with sort of powerful men and money and there's these, all these intersections. I found them entertaining but also terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I guess and that's not an uncommon reaction is people do find, particularly with uh, To Be a Machine and in, in different ways, this new book as well, people have found them sort of uh, upsetting and, and disturbing as well, well as they're both hopefully. they kind of about people trying well, they're to about cheat death. Thing. Yeah, that's, that's right. And they're about dark things. You know, the first book is about death and capitalism and the second one is about the apocalypse and capitalism, I suppose. So these are kind of <laughs> my themes. Fun, but, but people, they're really fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I like to have fun along the way while also sort of terrifying myself. But yeah, I, I mean, I suppose like both books are unavoidably about the future. Uh, yes. The future becomes for me a way to talk about the present. So for yeah. me, in both books, I'm writing about the present while using the future as a kind of a prism through which to view the sort of anxieties and yearnings of of the present moment. Do you think it's a particularly male preoccupation? I mean, the vast majority of the people you meet in both books are male. That's right, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly like the transhumanism sort of milieu that I wrote about in the first book is an overwhelmingly kind of oppressively male environment and sort of set of obsessions. And that in some ways has to do with Silicon Valley because Silicon Mm. Valley is sort of the locus point of, of all of these sort of movements. Silicon Valley is obviously quite a male sort of environment, the tech world in general. But there is something about this sort of desire or obsession with escaping death mm. that seems to be a peculiarly sort of male mm. obsession, I think. 
and sort of aggrandizing as well. Like the, the Elon Musk stuff mm. and, you know, trying to find other planets and, or trying to upload your brain, you know, to, oh God, I can't think of anything worse than living forever. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, that's the sort of position that I arrived with, with in the first book is that I, I, I'm not on board with death. I don't particularly want to die. It, in some ways, it seems like the worst thing I can possibly imagine right now, certainly. But also at the same time, never dying seems somehow yeah, more I unthinkable. Want to die <laughs> yeah, sometime. Yeah, if there could yeah. be some compromise between dying and not dying, I would be I would be happy with that. <laughs> I do talk to uh, women in the transhumanist movement in the first book, and I also talk about uh, women in the sort of apocalyptic doomsday prepper mm. spaces and, and so on in, in the new book. But they do they are both unavoidably overwhelmingly male concerns, and I think you know in the second book similarly. At a certain at certain points in the book, I realise that I'm writing about masculinity, particularly when it comes to the kind of the fantasies of the doomsday prepper people that I'm writing about, which are often fantasies of sort of reclaiming former modes of masculinity that have kind of fallen out of cultural prestige. Yeah. The kind of male protector who, you know, pits himself against a savage nature and, and uh, defends his, you know, children and women <laughs> folk against, you know, marauders. These are all like really sort of... Uh, fever dreams yeah. of, of a kind of mode of masculinity that never existed really in the first place, but mm. is certainly like a, a fantasy of reclaiming the past. I want to find out what the two women sitting here make of all of this um, uh, <laughs> male obsession with living forever and um, overcoming our mere mortal bodies through technology and all. Well, I was thinking as you said that, I was thinking I would love to kind of pause a perfect moment and you know in your life when you're having a great time and just have a few more years in that sort of yeah. Elysium where you know but yes it's it's a, such a terrifying idea but I I'm kind of just fascinated listening to you and I and I think sitting here after you know 10 weeks in lockdown yeah. it's like it's proper brain food for me <laughs> yeah well Lisa I think your hair will live on forever <laughs> 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 Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, when 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 you were when you were saying, Mark, about how how male oriented that whole prepper movement and you know that that reclaiming uh, a, a lost um, identity, I actually I wonder sometimes is it because men have more time? <laughs> You know, and I, I'm, yeah. I'm not being smart. Yeah, you know, no, I, 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 yeah, genu- yeah. I genuinely, genuinely mean it. Like, is it because women just have stuff to do, and they, you know, they wouldn't. Uh, I, I just wonder whether is it is it because men have more time? I think there might be an element of that. I mean, there's a there's a, a show on National Geographic. It's called Doomsday Preppers. And yeah, oh gosh, I know, that. Yeah. I know that. One. I mean, so then you know that like most <laughs> yeah. of the sort of yeah, episodes yeah. revolve around yeah. these. Men who have, yeah, in a way, like too much time, too much time on their hands. Yeah. And the women who are sort of like being dragged along yeah. for the ride and are yeah. always like generally quite sceptical about yeah. this. Well, also the culture has encouraged men to have grand ideas and, you know, all that. And it, it hasn't, yeah. in the, certainly in the past, yeah. encouraged women to. Now, Corey, it is interesting to me, this possible male-female view of the world, because in your book, Change, it's literally the opposite, because you know, you're, you're looking back, a hundred years, three, and going through three generations, but again, you're uh, illustrating the present through the past. So, um, my book is called The Tainted, and it's called The Tainted because it's um, well. To start off with, it's 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 the story of based on the story of the mutiny of the Connacht Rangers, uh, an Irish regiment that were posted in India in the 1920s. And the Irish Catholic soldiers mutinied because of what was happening in Ireland with the black and tans. Yeah, I'd never heard that before. Yeah, it's, it's little known outside academia, but, you know, it is, it's, it's, it's been a well-studied mutiny amongst mm. historians. And the reason I call the book The Tainted is because it's about three groups of people who are tainted by association. Mm. You know, the Irish Catholic soldiers because they served the crown. Anglo-Irish officers who were tainted because they were not English enough, they were not Irish enough. Uh, they were kind of in limbo. And then, uh, you know, the children of mixed race uh, children in India, many, many thousands of them fathered by Irish men who served in India mm. over, over the period of, you know, two, 250 years that Irish people have been in India, uh, or rather that, that that Irish people were in India at that time. So it's, you know, it's, it's a story of, of you know, these three groups of people and what happens, uh, what happens, you know, to them. But it's interesting because though the book is based, you know, is is set in the 1920s and then again in the 1980s, mm. but actually, and I never, I never thought of it as I was writing it, the theme of, you know, mixed race mm-hmm. and belonging and, you know, your identity, that's actually just so current. It's very now, yeah. Uh, you know, so, so very current. And for me personally, 
you know, I started the book 18 years ago. My children were very small. I never thought of them having children. And now I'm actually looking at my own children and saying, gosh, you know, my own grandchildren are going yeah. to be mixed race. They are going to be mixed mm. race. So, and, and your own children are kind of mixed culture. Yes, mi- mixed culture. Uh, already. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that, I mean, there's there's anxieties that come with that knowledge that, gosh, you know, my, my grandchildren are going to be mixed race. I mean, having said that, none, none of my children are even married or have any, don't even have a ring on their fingers. And we know but, they have condoms. Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> but, um, dusty yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying how many were left over, <laughs> but um, you know, it it does it does make you stop and pause and think. Gosh, mm. you know, I I wrote something that was set in the past, but nothing has changed. Yeah. Nothing has changed because people of mixed race still face massive prejudice. Yeah, and and you know, obviously we're we're you know here we we concern ourselves with our own. Things and the Black Lives Matter, but in India too, race is very yeah yeah you know, yeah. I mean the you know racism, colorism, casteism. Mm-hmm. Sure, Indian Indians are Indians are champions at at that. You know, yeah. and you know it's the one thing that's holding India back. Mm-hmm. And you know, Mark, you you were, you were talking earlier on about always feeling that you're you're at the edge of of an abyss, or you know, mm. at every point of time. You know, even in 2016, when you were writing, you thought, you know, the world was at, at the mm. edge. I was in India in, in January and literally I thought, my God, you know, this country is on the brink of of collapse because of, uh, you know, religious bigotry, mm. uh, casteism. It was actually quite sad uh, when I left India because when I, when I originally left India in 1986, I was so proud if somebody asked me to say that, I came from the largest secular democracy in the world. Mm. Can't say that anymore. Yeah. It's such a tragedy, you know. And how do your own grown children who grew up here and everything, well, like when they go to India, is that a, a shock to them? Well, I mean, n- not so shocked because, I mean, they have been often enough, mm. but they do question. I mean, for, for example, you know, I was, uh, when, I, when I was in India in, India in, uh, in February, it was actually quite shocking that so many of the ads for for whatever, whether it's shampoos or washing machines or whatever, uh, the models are all Ukrainian women. Look, it's blooming daft, you know, because they're fair and, you know, all East European models being used to advertise products in India. Yeah. Actually, there's no Indian woman that would be as fair as a Ukrainian woman, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I mean, so that that kind of stuff when my kids see that yes they would they would be kind of quite exasperated i would say mm. is the word you know well you also have this other uh, funny little connection to the apocalypse because um i was you know reading all the stuff about you and i'm reading this uh, little piece from the irish times about your first book launch you know um when your first book came out i've had the indian and i just it's just a little social kind of column but it keeps mentioning everyone's reaction to the horrific news and where they were. And I thought, what is this about? And then I looked at the date and it was yeah, uh, September 11th. Yeah, it was a peculiar thing. I was actually in the RT studios to be interviewed by Marion Finucan and I was actually with her, but somebody came in and said, there's a small plane gone into one of the Twin Towers. And from there, you know, within within a few half an hour or so, it, it had gone from a small plane to what had happened. And now this book has created yeah. the viral apocalypse. <laughs> so um, I think you need to stop writing. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of talk about the, 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 the taint it might end up being a film. And I can see why it has the dramatic sweep and, and all that. That would be exciting, yeah. wouldn't it? Well, I'm, I'm ready with the gown. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody um, make it into a film. <laughs> Um, you know, you came here, of course, in 1987, was it? Yeah, uh, 87. Which is a very different Ireland. Very few people, um, you know, with brown skin in this country at the time. But I think where you sort of felt you were insulated in some way from, well, certainly from any overt racism, because your husband was the doctor. and Yeah, I mean, I, and I think, uh, I, I think that fact colours a lot of brown people's mm-hmm. uh, experience you know, anywhere in the world yeah. uh, compared to black people's experience or compared to, you know, travellers' experiences. or Because I think with racism, there's also classism invades mm-hmm. racism. Yeah. Uh, and that mix sometimes leaves some people better off yeah. uh, and some people really terribly off. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you... 
people just assume you're if you're brown you're a doctor or you're a you know IT person but i mean if you were black you could just as easily be a doctor or an IT person or a you know a nobel prize winner you know but it's just perceptions of between class and race get so mixed yeah. up and um you know can create really horrible yeah. problems in some ways india was always presented in, in this hippie version of being a sort of a you know yeah a people going to find yeah, yeah yeah it's yeah it's a funny i mean you know it's such a contra- uh, country of such mm. contradictions because uh, middle class indians are the first ones to you know jump on the bandwagon of black lives matter or whatever because you know their children are studying abroad mm. the very same people would treat people in india in like a, caste, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So you know, it's a it's a peculiar yeah. country. Mark, one of the other things in this latest book, you've also been to Chernobyl. Mm. Um, how is that? Um, because yeah. that is post-apocalyptic. I mean, it. Is, I mean, that's the reason why I went there because you know I'm writing this book about apocalyptic anxieties and sort of imagining what the end of the world might be like, and there are. You know, there are several places in the world where some kind of apocalyptic event has happened. But, you know, Chernobyl happens to be one that you can visit as a tourist, essentially. In fact, it's the only way that you can really go officially to Chernobyl is, is as a tourist. You you know, you get taken on a tour bus from, from Kiev and you go for like a couple of days and you stay overnight in a hotel and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's an extraordinary place because it is... Like in one sense, it's very beautiful because it's like it's completely uninhabited, more yeah. or less. Um, and nature you know, nature's yeah, it's sort of, it. yeah, and like very, very quickly. I mean, it's you know, it's it's thirty years or so since the since the disaster, but it's like it's it's almost the only thing I can compare it to is it's like walking around Pompeii or something. But it's also fundamentally different because it is a ruin of the modern era. So you know, in a way, obviously, you know, Soviet. Uh, the Soviet Union was a, is a kind of a collapsed civilization, so in that sense, it is a former civilization. But it's still, it's still recognizably of our own time. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's the technological kind of era that we're still in, and it's very strange and jarring to walk around a place like that that is both modern and a complete, you know, civilizational ruin. Yeah, so, yeah. And it sort of is the apocalyptic dreams of my childhood. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, the bomb exactly. dropping, but that is yeah. what we were like all. I mean, so it's fascinating. Of. I wouldn't recommend it as a weekend break or whatever, but mm. it is definitely a, a unique and fascinating place mm. to visit. Um, Lisa, um, let's. I, I could do some cheering up, and I think you might be um the, the one to do that because <laughs> <laughs> you have a song. Um, one drop of rain. Um, do you want to? Tell us something about it. Sure. So this is a song that was inspired from a beautiful book of short stories by the wonderful writer Mary Lavin. Yes. So I wrote a couple of songs inspired by the words of Mary Lavin. And in the short stories, there's one lady and one character called Vera, who I fell in love with. At the start, the first story, her husband has died and she's living in a big farmhouse surrounded by fields. And... She loves the isolation of the place, but at night time, she's very scared of the dark. And one evening she hears a knock on the door after dark and she's very, very nervous. And there's just beautiful imagery all through it and imagery like she, you know, br- her brushing her hair and the blue spark of electricity from the hairbrush. I, I took inspiration from that, for example. And, <laughs> of course you did, Miss Hair. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> um, but this song, One Drop of Rain, is a couple of stories into the book. And it's when Vera has an encounter with a young gentleman. And in her heart, she's recalling her husband, who's who she sees as the blue star, or as I phrased it, he's the blue star in the sky watching over mm. her. And in this song I've written, One Drop of Rain, she's in reverie and she's missing him. And he is the one drop of rain in her heart that will... Keep You're her going. A big soppy old romantic. I sure am. I love yeah. romance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And where uh, John McLaughlin is going to uh, come back and uh, accompany you, I believe is that right? Sure. Yes. She's like the opposite of you, Mark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whatever I am.
where do we go from here? Where do we go? Ooh, how can I find my way? Find my way. Find. Thank you so much. Um, last thing that I wanted to chat to you about is um, missing stuff. Because you are one of the hardest working actresses in this country. And suddenly theatre's gone. If you'd said that to me a few months ago, I just couldn't even imagine it. No. Um, like my, my work dropped away. And I think there's actually, I, I sense sometimes a bit of a divide now at the moment between people who worked in jobs that were able in some way to continue, even though they're working from home or something. And other people who's everything just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And theatre has disappeared. Yeah, it's like we just ran out of road, really. Yeah. You know, it's like Roadrunner. You know, he's sort of in midair and it's just, yeah. you're just about to, to and fall. And you know, you, you're in the lucky position to be you know, a working actress. And it's all gone. It's all gone. And I, I've realised how incredibly lucky I have been. And I think what's really kind of been a great focus for me during this time is with everything on hold and stalled and Mm. to realise I I really love what I do and it means so much to me. And music is the same. You know, I often get asked, do you prefer being an actor than to being a singer? And I see them as complete companions. So I think my vocation, I suppose, if that's the right word for what what I love to do, has really been a great strength for me during this time. And it just it allows you this, you know, I've tried to be positive and allow it to, we just got to wait. there's something that, you know, like, so the writers here in the room, they're used to working alone yeah. and sitting down at a desk and writing. What, what, what you and I have always been doing is <laughs> the whole point is to get into a yeah. room with all these people and feel their yeah. reaction to what you're doing. And at the end, hopefully, get some applause from them <laughs> or whatever. You know, yeah, that's, yeah. Um, and that's just, that is not the same online. Mm. It's not the same. And I think I've noticed this, especially as a, as a musician, that, you know, if you're on stage in character, to a certain point, you're interacting with an audience, but you're within a kind of a scaffolding or, or, yeah. a, or a, there's a mask in, in a way of your character. Yeah. As Lisa Lam, singer-songwriter, that's like yourself, it's completely immersive and it's yeah. about you know, the tide of the evening and, and, you know, you might have a set list, but it might change. And John will know this, like we we write our set lists, but they evolve depending on the night, the audience and no audience is the same. And that complete live uh, walking the plank and immersing yourself with the crowd is something I really miss. And I used to sort of sometimes complain, but I used to sort of say that, you know, for me, it was often a relief to end up in a group show like when I was in Riot, for example, or something. Because afterwards you come off the stage and there's a whole gang of you. And you're yeah. all excited and you're, you know, the, the adrenaline is running and you can yeah. sort of have that. Whereas if you're doing a one-woman show, you come off and you're alone in the dressing room. You know, and it's, it's sort of, it's all just, uh, yeah. but that pales in comparison. Sitting at home and you're all dressed up in your gear and you're doing something on some, your phone camera that's going off on Zoom. And then 
it's over and you're sitting in your kitchen. I know. Like it's it's d- depressing. It, it's, it's, you know, like even on Zoom, you kind of, you, I think your brain thinks you're, you're going to be able to touch that person there yeah. or, or, or say hi or hug them or, you know, and yet you're denied that. So you're, I think there's, it's, there's quite an exhaustion with all the Zoom stuff too, that yeah. you're, you're in trying your best to interact, but it's not the same Maybe experience. on stage, you're hoping, you know, nobody's going to grumble and hug you with hope <laughs> in the show. But there was that possibility and that's just gone. I think so it's nobody's reading. Nobody's clapping. There's no re- you can't read reactions. You can't, you can't read reactions. Nothing. You can't yeah. sort of see if oh, this no song idea is... people are loving it or hating it. Yeah. Yeah. Or how many of them are there? Yeah. Yeah. You out there. Yeah. 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 Although, yeah. poor old Skype. What did they do wrong? Yeah. <laughs> like, they gone from being a verb to being yeah, to yeah, nothing. Yeah, yeah. Mark, so you're going to sit at home. Around. Yeah, yeah. I kind of have notions of things that I want to do, like themes of things that I want to explore or whatever, and also things that I don't want to do. Really? You know, both of my previous books involved a lot of traveling and uh, I was starting to feel ambivalent about that in various ways it's expensive the carbon aspect of it was sort of increasingly becoming a bit of an albatross around my neck uh, and also just being away from my family and Carver you are working on another book yes I am and you know for me I think that the lockdown actually just brought me back to where I was before uh, before I, you know, before this book came out, before the current book came out, which is, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a free range pig farmer. Are you? Yes, I am. <laughs> I thought I knew everything about you. I've read a lot about you. <laughs> yeah, so I, I actually, I keep free range pigs, but because uh, the book was coming out and I knew I'd be traveling a lot. So this year I had said to myself, in fact, last year as well, I was so busy with the edits and, you know, going back and forth to India, just finalizing, uh, you know, the last bits of the book. I had actually decided not to not to do the pigs this year. And uh, so the minute we went into lockdown and I realized, you know, this was going to be, you know, a year that there was going to be less travel, less of everything. I just just reverted back to my old thing, and I'm, I'm I keep my the pigs. pigs. Must be thrilled. Yeah, <laughs> but it's great because you know the the, the, the hobby of free range f- uh, pig farming and writing believe it or not, actually go together because, you know, when you're out with the pigs or you're doing whatever you have to do with them in terms of farming, you you have so much of thinking time, mm. you know, and it's almost always, always very early in the morning or late at night. So <laughs> I don't like thinking and I don't like learning, <laughs> but I do like pigs. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, listen, thank you all so much. Um, and especially for making our first show back in this weird new format. Um, easy uh, for us. And um, so that is us for our show this week. Um, and I have to say that it was worth squeezing into the courses again, even with my uh, added uh, lockdown weight. And my thanks to the guests, uh, Mark O'Connell, Corbery Madavan, Lisa Lamb and John McLaughlin um, accompanying her. Um, thank you for those songs and those thoughts. And uh, we'll be back next week with a very different uh, mix of guests. Um, and if you head to pantosocracy.ie, you can find videos and much more um, from this show and all the other. 